Help, I need someone to talk to about true crime. Will you join Will me? You join me? Hi, my name is Isla Watson, and I am your true crime consultant, ready to talk to you about true crime. Hello, 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 everyone. A very big welcome. Thank you so much for being here at my very first episode ever. So you're listening to True Crime Consultant, a brand new true crime podcast by yours truly. My name is Isla, and I am a management consultant during the day and a true crime consultant at night. And today I want to talk to you guys about the murders of J.B. Beasley and Tracy Hollett. And without further ado, let's get into it. July 31st, 1999 was JB's birthday. She was gonna go to a party. They never found the party, they never went to the party. They just couldn't understand the directions. She said, Mom, we're on our way home. I knew that something beyond her control was keeping her from getting home. The investigator said, are you alone? And I said, what's going on? He said, they're dead, Cheryl, they're murdered, they're dead. On the evening of July 31st, 1999, 17-year-old J.B. Beasley arrived at her best friend's house, fellow 17-year-old Tracy Hollett, at around 9.45 p.m. She had arrived there to pick up Tracy as they were going to attend a party together. The two left Tracy's house at around 10 p.m., leaving their hometown of Dothan in Alabama. The two were traveling in J.B.'s black 1993 Mazda 929, which was a gift from her father. The party they were planning on attending was in Headland, a town roughly 10 miles, which is about 16 kilometers northeast of Dothan. Now I can imagine the two best friends chatting away with music playing in the background. Maybe they were discussing who were going to attend this party. Perhaps they had crushes and maybe they were talking about what they were going to say to them or how they were going to act. The energy inside this car must have been positive and filled with young teenage excitement and maybe even some nerves. The good ones, of course. Unfortunately though, somewhere along the way, they became lost. At around 10.30 p.m., so 30 minutes after they left Tracy's house, they had stopped at a BP gas station in Headland near the intersection of routes 173 and 431. At this gas station, they used a payphone to call friends, presumably to get better directions. Now back in 1999, smartphones and Google Maps of course weren't a thing, so if you got lost, you either needed to have a map on you, like a physical map, or you would have to ask someone for directions. About one hour after this call, at around 11.30pm, the girls ended up way in Ozark, Alabama, still not knowing how to get to this party. They were now roughly 24 miles, which is almost 39 kilometers, northwest of Headland, their intended destination and they were also 20 miles or 32 kilometers from home. They were further away from their intended destination than they were when they originally left Tracy's house earlier that evening at 10 p.m. And keep in mind, the drive from Dothan to Headland, where the party was being held, should have taken no more than 20 minutes. But they had gotten so lost that they had been driving around for one and a half hours. So at 11.30 p.m., they stopped at a big little store, which is a convenience store on Broad Street in Ozark, as it was once again time to ask for directions. Surveillance footage shows that the two girls were on the property. The store, which also had a gas station, had closed 30 minutes before they arrived. But at the same time, 
a woman named Marilyn Merritt and her daughter had also stopped at this big little store. The girls asked this woman, Marilyn, for directions, not to the party, but back to their hometown, Dothan. You see, the girls actually had an 11.30 p.m. curfew, but I also think that even without a curfew, at this point, the girls figured that they might as well head home, especially once they realized how far away they were from the party location and the fact that it was already 11.30 p.m. and the fact that they had gotten lost not once but twice and had been driving around for one and a half hours. They seemed to understand these directions given to them in Maryland. And Marilyn stated that the girls were nice and seemed in good spirits. She also noted that both the car and the girls were clean, a detail that will become relevant later on. So all things considered, according to Marilyn, nothing seemed wrong at all. Marilyn then witnessed Tracy using a payphone outside the store. Tracy's mom confirmed this phone call was to her. Tracy had called her parents to let them know that they had gotten lost and that they were now in Ozark. She said that they had gotten directions from a woman and were on their way home. Carol Roberts, Tracy's mom, stated, Nothing was wrong in Tracy's voice. It was, Mom, I love you, I'll be home soon. And... This is a conversation that I've had with my mom a lot of times, I think, growing up, um, especially in my teenage years. I cannot count how many times I've called my mom after, you know, hanging out with friends or going to a party or even after finishing work late or something like that, um, giving her a call to let her know that, you know, I'm going to be home soon. Everything's cool. I'll be home 20, 30 minutes, whatever. And my mom needs to get these phone calls for me because she gets worried when I'm out late. So I can imagine the sense of relief that Tracy's mom must have felt um, after hearing her daughter's voice and after hearing her daughter tell her that she was going to be home uh, soon. Now, after this phone call, Marilyn saw JB and Tracy pull out of the parking lot and turn right towards the highway as instructed. It was the last time J.B. Beasley and Tracy Hollett were seen alive. The girls never made it home. Now, there's one detail that I'm not confident about, and that is uh, whether Marilyn left uh, the big little store first or whether J.B. and Tracy left first. It might have been the case that Marilyn did leave first, but saw J.B. and Tracy leave in her rearview mirror or something like that. Um, but in any case, Marilyn was the last person to see the girls alive, and she was also the last person that spoke to them, other than the person that killed them, of course. Now, the next morning, at around 8 a.m., on August 1st, 1999, Tracy's mother called the police and reported her daughter missing. After she woke and discovered that Tracy had actually never returned home, Carol was extremely worried. She later stated that Tracy was never late and knew something beyond her control was keeping her from getting home. And that's actually the clip that you heard um, at the beginning uh, of the case. It did not take long for the police to find an important clue, as almost at the exact moment that the girls were reported missing, they found JB's black Mazda, although at the time they didn't know that it was her, her car. The vehicle was found along Herring Avenue in Ozark. Herring Avenue is a wooded and secluded street less than a mile from the gas station where the girls were last seen. Now to give you some more information on where the vehicle was found, even though Herring Avenue is a residential street, about half of it is actually just wooded and very secluded with no houses or even any street lighting uh, on this part of the street. So when I look at it on Google Maps, you can already kind of see that it feels kind of dark. So I can only imagine how dark it must have been um, at nighttime especially without any streetlights there. So this was definitely very secluded and in a quiet part of the street. Now, according to the police, when the car was initially found, there were no immediate signs of foul play. 
Police say the reason that the girl stopped, wherever that may have been, it remains a mystery. Since there was no damage to the car, they did not believe that someone had forced the girls off the road. What was also odd was that the car was muddy and the gas tank was empty despite it being filled up the day before. The driver's side window was also rolled down a few inches and the doors were unlocked. Now, as you can remember, previously Marilyn stated that the car was actually clean, but now when the police find it, it is actually muddy. The police at the scene also immediately ruled out robbery as a motive as the girl's purses remained in the car and in plain view with even some cash still inside the wallets. Also, another interesting detail is the fact that JB's driver's license was on the dashboard. The only thing seemingly missing was the car keys. The keys were attached to a chain that had white blocks with black letters that spelled out hard to get. To this day, this key, uh, the keychain, have never been found. And again, it was unknown and confusing to the officers at the scene why the girls would have stopped in that location. A sergeant at the scene, upon finding the vehicle, immediately contacted Ozark's chief of detectives, Lieutenant Rex Tipton, and said, I don't know why I'm bothering you, but something about this feels funny. Lieutenant Tipton then told the sergeant to stay there and keep an eye on the car. After this, Lieutenant Tipton ran the plates and then he contacted the Dothan Police Department since that's where the car was registered. This is when the Dothan Police Department informed them about the missing persons report regarding J.B. Beasley and Tracy Hollett. At that point, the situation became far more serious. Thinking that they could not get access to the trunk without the keys or without forcing the trunk open, initial responders continued to investigate the perimeter while they waited for a tow truck. I'm guessing that they didn't want to risk messing with the crime scene or messing with evidence, so they checked the roadside and the nearby woods, searching for clues as to what became of the two missing teens. Because remember, at this point, they had found the car, they knew the girls were missing, but they hadn't actually found the girls yet. Now, several hours after the discovery of the vehicle, at around 2 p.m., an investigator that had arrived at the scene from Dothan Police Department realized that he could open the trunk of the black Mazda with a latch within the car. Now, I'm not sure why no one else was able to figure this out, but in any case, the missing keys weren't needed after all. When police opened the trunk, the bodies of the two girls were found inside. Now, let me tell you something about the scene inside the trunk. It was evident that both girls had been shot dead. Tracy in the temple and JB in the right cheek. Also, a nine millimeter casing laid precariously on Tracy's leg, as if it was uh, placed there almost. Both girls were clothed, um, and also Tracy's new balanced tennis shoes that she'd only bought the week before were covered in mud. And based on the bodies and how they were positioned, it seemed that Tracy was placed in the trunk first. JB was also noticeably dirty with her shoes muddy as well. Both girls' pants were wet up to their knees, suggesting that they had been shot executioner style before being placed in the trunk. Um, and both girls, I think they're, you know, the, the, the jeans were also muddy up to the knees. And in any case, it was completely different from when Marilyn had seen them. Because remember, when Marilyn had last seen the girls, she said that they were both clean, as was the car. But then when they were found, JB and Tracy, as well as the car, were all covered in mud. An autopsy later showed no signs of rape, 
but traces of semen were found on JB's bra, panties, and skin. However, no DNA match was ever made at the time, and the girls had no alcohol or drugs in their system. Based on what they saw in and around the car, Investigators did not believe that JB and Tracy had been murdered on Herring Avenue, where the car was found. However, they weren't able to identify the location uh, where the girls had been shot and killed. So that kind of remains unknown to this day. But to me, if there was no blood found around the car when the police were investigating the perimeter, and there was no evidence of a struggle or anything outside the car, you know, because the girls were kind of muddy and um, there was no evidence of any footprints or anything around the car. So if you don't have any blood around the car and there is no evidence of a struggle or anything else, occurring outside of where the car was found. Together with the fact that the keys were missing, I definitely agree with the idea that the girls were murdered somewhere else and that their killer drove them to Herring Avenue after putting their bodies in the trunk and that he left them there, taking the keys with him. And then, a month after the murders of J.B. Beasley and Tracy Hollett, a confession is made. On the night of July 31st, 1999, at the same time that Tracy Hollett made that call to her mother from the payphone outside of that convenience store to tell her that she was coming home, 28-year-old Johnny William Barentine told his wife that he was going out to buy milk for their two-year-old son. This was at around 11.30 p.m. Johnny Barentine, however, did not return home until about 1 a.m. And according to his wife, when he did come home, he was clearly upset about something and he had been gone for longer than necessary because I believe that the um, the store that he was going to buy milk from wasn't that far from their house. He told her that his car had been hit by a black truck with Dothan tags near Herring Avenue. Then a couple days later, Johnny Barentine started telling others around him that he had information about the murders of JB and Tracy. A friend of his encouraged him to tell the authorities about what he knew to collect the reward. At the time, there was a $35,000 reward for any information that would result in an arrest. So on September 1st, 1999, Johnny Barentine walked into the Ozark Police Department where he was then interviewed for four hours. Now, first of all, I don't know how this, this works, but if you're coming to give information, I don't know why you would be interviewed for four hours. And I'm sure Johnny was as well, because in that time, he told six different stories to the police. And at times, he even placed himself at the crime scene. Now, I won't go into detail about all versions that Barentine told police, but he never actually admitted himself to the murders. But one time he did say, for example, that he picked up someone and that someone else had you know, shot the girls and stuff like that. After this confession, police arrested Barentine and charged him with two counts of capital murder. But then he retracted his confession, claiming he was innocent and that he made the whole thing up to get the reward money. Johnny must have been shocked, first of all, when he walked into this police station and he was thinking, I'm gonna give these guys a little story because I want this $35,000. But then all of a sudden he's in there for four hours getting interviewed. I'm sure he was feeling the pressure and all of a sudden he's being arrested and charged with two counts of capital murder, I would have been shocked as well. So of course he retracts because remember, Johnny didn't actually do anything. He just pretended to have information, which of course is never right. Um, now when Barentine's DNA was tested, it did not match the semen found on JB's body and clothing. Therefore, the judge approved Barentine's bond request. He was released 
from jail on Friday, December 17, 1999. And then in January 2000, a grand jury declined to indict him. And I believe the reason was, of course, you know, there wasn't any evidence other than um, Johnny giving six different stories. Also, of course, the DNA did not match. And I think another thing that played into this is the fact that Johnny didn't have a very high IQ. And I think that he was a little mentally challenged, um, at least from what I was able to find on him. So that might explain why when he went to the police to give information on the murders, he ended up confessing. Because of course, I think most people would also know that if you confess and if you've actually committed a crime, there's no way that you're going to get this reward money, right? So, um, you know, I, I, I do think that Johnny was, you know, he was struggling a bit and I don't think that he was planning on confessing um, and I don't really think that he had anything to do with this. But in any case, after Johnny, after Johnny Barentine, there were three other suspects. First, there was a man from Michigan. He attended a party the night of the murders near where the car was found. The man who left town within days after the murders could not account for three or four hours of his time the night that JB and Tracy were murdered. In addition, he also made suspicious statements to people about that night, although police did not elaborate on what was meant by suspicious. Maybe just like Johnny Barentine, he was just going around telling people that he knew things about the murders of JB and Tracy. Regardless, DNA tests failed to match the man from Michigan to the semen found on JB. So this guy was also cleared. And they moved on to the next guy. There was a driver of a small white pickup truck. A video surveillance camera inside the big little store caught footage of a seemingly, you know, small white pickup truck at the gas pumps at the same time that JB and Tracy were at the phone outside calling Tracy's parents. And of course, the footage was grainy and of poor quality. So they could not read a license plate or get a clear image of who was driving the pickup. Now, I saw a picture of this surveillance footage and it is horrible. You can barely even make up that it is a white pickup truck. It is, it's, it's honestly, it's useless, right? And I, I'm pretty sure you can even confidently say that it's a white pickup truck. You know, it could have been a beige or you know whatever light color and of course also we have to take into consideration the fact that you know this was a camera that was inside the store and wasn't i don't think it was there to film what was happening outside i don't know if they didn't have any cameras outside uh, unfortunately and to add to this you know poor video footage quality because the store was closed there was also no record of a gas purchase uh, or any kind of purchase being made at the pump by credit or debit card at the time so there was really nothing that could give them any idea as to who this person was or, or you know as to who the owner of the pickup truck was uh, the video also never reveals anyone getting out of the truck so you know seemingly the car was just there and i also read some other sources that also said you know the car was kind of idling and it seemed as though at the same time that jb and tracy were there this person kind of was able to see them from where the car was standing still so this is definitely giving me very creepy vibes for sure you know that there is someone in a truck it's 11 30 p.m and he's sitting in the in his truck just probably watching these girls now a month into the investigation they released a photo of the truck to the media but no one came forward to identify themselves as the owner of the truck or with any information and in any case i'm not surprised like i said it's very hard 
to make up anything uh, from this picture. So unfortunately, the truck and the driver were never found, and it is difficult to say whether or not this person driving the truck had something to do with the murders. But in any case, I think the main reason that police wanted to find him is they believed that he could have had some useful information, especially if he was just sitting there. You know, he might have seen something. The police just mainly believed that he could have been a potential witness. And I'm not sure about that, but we'll get into that a little later. Now, finally, there was a man from Mississippi. On the night of the murders, he was visiting relatives of his in Ozark, and he left town two days later. There was no factual information that connected him to the case, but in order to exclude him, his DNA was tested, but it did not match uh, the DNA found on the, at the crime scene. So I'm not really sure how the police came to this guy. Maybe someone gave a tip and said, hey, I know that this guy was in town at the time, you gotta check him out. The three suspects that they had were definitely not very strong contenders. Except for one, maybe. But we'll get into that a little later. And I think, you know, that I'm talking about the white pickup truck. Because that's a weird one. Very weird. It, it, I, I just have to kind of stop for a second and let you guys know that when I read this and I recently found some more information on this, it gave me the chills because it just feels so creepy. You know, this gas station, this convenience store is closed. And here is a guy, well, I don't mean to assume anyone's gender, but a guy was just sitting there and he can probably see the girls and he can see them at the payphone. Worst case scenario, he might have overheard them talking. But I don't wanna get ahead of myself. We're gonna keep going. We'll circle back to this. You have my word. Then there was a late witness with a very, very interesting statement. In March 2000, eight months after the murders of JB and Tracy, the police were phoned by a woman. And this woman claimed that on the night of the murders, she heard screams and two gunshots near Highway 123 South, just within the city limits. Now this is interesting, right? Because we know that both girls had been shot with one bullet to the head, and she heard exactly two gunshots, and she heard screaming. And the reason that she gave for not coming forward sooner was that she did not want to get involved. Now, to me, this is just the worst excuse, you know? Two 17-year-old girls have been murdered in cold blood, and if you have information, you have to share it. You do not need to get involved, because you can also, you know, give these tips anonymously. And I'm pretty sure that she did in the end, after eight months. You know, this is something that the police could have used way sooner, especially eight months. You know, imagine that there was any evidence at the scene. Maybe they could have seen you know, signs of a struggle, or they could have seen footprints, or a second set of tire tracks, or whatever. Maybe they could have found the tire tracks belonging to JB's car. Uh, maybe they would have been able to find the shell casings. I don't know. In eight months, a lot can happen. It rains. Other cars and people pass through. She kept this information to herself for eight months. That's not right. Following this information, the police did their jobs. They searched the area with metal detectors. I'm guessing that they were hoping to find bullet casings or anything like that. They did find a nine millimeter bullet, which was the same type used to kill the girls, but the brand names did not match. And also the unspent bullet had no useful markings that would help with forensic comparison to other uh, evidence. So it was not possible to compare it to, for example, that shell casing that they found in the trunk. There seemingly was also another item that was found at the potential crime scene on Highway 123. And this item was tested along with soil samples 
that were taken from the possible murder scene. The soil was compared to dirt taken from the clothing of JB and Tracy. But it is unclear what the other item was or what came from the testing. Now maybe the police decided to keep this to themselves as something that they could use in the case that they would find a new potential suspect. Because it happens more often, right? During cases when police keep certain information close to their chest as it is something, for example, that only the murderer would know. Now unfortunately, the lack of details and eyewitnesses further slowed down the investigation and eventually it stalled and the case went cold. So was this a police cover-up? In 2015, a blogger named John Carroll published a post that claimed at least one member of the Ozark Police Department was directly responsible for shooting and killing J.B. Beasley and Tracy Hollett. The motive for this alleged police killing and cover-up, you ask? The teens had cassette tapes in their possession that implicated local cops in the local drug trade. This theory was based on the word of a former Ozark auxiliary police officer, Rena Crump. And I am pretty sure that auxiliary, auxiliary police officer means a voluntary police officer or something like that, but correct me if I'm wrong, please do. I love learning. She also claimed that numerous law enforcement officials had knowledge of the murderer's identity and covered it up by getting rid of evidence and making threats. She claimed one cop in particular, Butch Whittington, messaged her on Facebook and told her to keep her fucking mouth shut. Wow. She also named two other cops, Rex Tipton and Eddie Henderson. Now remember, Rex Tipton was Ozark's chief of detectives at the time of the murders. Rena went as far as to say that police chief Tony Spivey, or Spivey, Spivey, I'm gonna go with Spivey. Tony Spivey also knew the killer's identity and helped cover it up as well. So Rena's out here and she's just, you know, dragging name after name, claiming that they are part of this whole cover-up. To me, that kind of feels dangerous. Rena alleged that on the night of July 31st, 1999, this police officer, whoever it was, pulled over J.B. Beasley and demanded to know the whereabouts of these cassette tapes that contained recorded conversations that could have incriminated top Ozark police officials and others in the local cocaine distribution. Now, according to the article written by John Carroll, the retired officer believes that the two girls intended to use these tapes in a court case that was scheduled for the coming Monday, August 2nd, 1999, less than 48 hours after they were murdered. The tapes were apparently to be entered as evidence. I don't know about you, but I have thoughts, but we'll get to them. Now, despite Rena's allegations and the fact that she named certain police officers about their involvement in the murders, she refused to name the officer who actually supposedly murdered the girls or how JB acquired these tapes. However, it is the understanding of this author, John Carroll, that JB was present when the conversations took place and that she secretly recorded them. I I don't know what to think of this. Um, I find this very hard to believe because why would JB even be involved in something like this? You know, who is she hanging out with that she's attending a conversation uh, between these police officers and that she's recording them? And as far as I know, I, I haven't seen or read anything or heard anything from her family or, or whatever that, you know, she was 
attending court on Monday in order to hand over these recordings or whatever. This police conspiracy cover-up theory seems completely absurd to me. And I honestly, I cannot believe it. And I also don't know why this Rena would want to come forward and say something like this because, you know, she did drop names and it had consequences because the law enforcement officials that Rena accused, every single one of them, of course, denied any involvement in the murders of J.B. Beasley and Tracy Hollett. But they even sued her, of course, for slander and for spreading rumors about them out there. And I mean, the only thing that this story would kind of, I guess, validate is part of a theory that police pulled over the girls because J.B.'s driver's license was on her dashboard. So to some people, it kind of felt that someone who was a police officer or someone pretending to be a police officer pulled the girls over and that because JB believed that she was being pulled over by police, she took out her driver's license and put it on a dashboard ready to give to the police officer when he asked for it. In any case, to me, this conspiracy theory is absurd. Two decades after J.B. Beasley and Tracy Hollett were murdered, DNA led to an arrest. In March of 2019, Officers arrested 45-year-old Coley McCraney and he was charged with the murders of JB and Tracy. DNA found on JB's body and clothing were matched to McCraney through genetic genealogy. Hundreds of police departments are these days using a combination of GEDmatch and crime scene DNA to track down family members of possible suspects. GEDmatch is an online service to compare DNA data files from different testing companies. Investigators actually use the same technique which led them to find the alleged Golden State Killer. And after the arrest of the Golden State Killer, Marlos Walker, Ozark's current police chief, who was an officer at the time of the murders, was inspired to use the same method to try and solve the murders of J.B. Beasley and Tracy Hollett. Because after all, they found DNA at the scene. So how did they do it? How does this work? I'm going to try to explain this in a very simple way, and I'm not going to go into detail because the technology and the method behind it is very complicated because we're talking, of course, about DNA, etc. But in a simple way to kind of give you an overview, high level overview of how this went, very high level. A company called Parabon Nanolabs, which is essentially specialized in putting together DNA profiles for law enforcement, they put together a DNA profile based on the DNA that was found at the scene. Investigators then submitted this DNA profile to the genealogical database GEDmatch, as I mentioned before. They were then able to locate McCraney after Parabon Labs mapped his family tree and identified his relatives. And of course, they were able to find his relatives because when people use these DNA testing sites, they upload it all and then GEDmatch combines all of that DNA. So maybe his aunt and his uncle or whatever, if they had done a test like that, Parabon Labs would have been able to find them. And because there was DNA familiarity, they were able to map his family tree and then link it back to him. Following this, the investigators obtained DNA from McCraney himself and it was a match. McCraney has denied killing the girls and his wife was able to provide an alibi for his whereabouts the night of the killings. She stated that her husband had returned home that night a little after 1 a.m. But despite her testimony, there are 90 minutes between when the girls were murdered and when McCraney returned home that he's unaccounted for. McCraney is from Ozark, oh my god, as were the girls, and he lived in Dothan prior to his arrest. 
What a coincidence. Small world. Now, he also went to school in Ozark and he would have been 26 at the time of the murders. McCraney also served time in the military. Um, he has worked as a truck driver and he even owned a church. And he is currently married with children. He has no criminal record and he was not considered a suspect prior to this DNA match. Also interesting is that it was reported by the Dothan Eagle that McCraney's ex-wife had actually filed a complaint with the Air Force in 1994 stating that McCraney had assaulted her. So to me this definitely stands out because that kind of shows you that he is capable of uh, committing a violent crime or a violent act. On August 5th, 2022, CBS News published an article stating that Renee Crum had recanted her earlier claims. A woman whose claims about police being involved in the decades-old killings of two Alabama teens found dead in a car trunk fueled a social media frenzy several years ago now says she was lying the whole time. During a hearing, Renee Crum recanted her allegations made in 2015. Coley McCraney's defense lawyers had actually hoped that uh, Crum's testimony about police involvement and wrongdoing could actually help clear their client. But after repeatedly saying that she couldn't recall certain things, Crumb blurted out, I lied. Defense attorney David Harrison, who is McCraney's defense attorney, suggested that Crumb was threatened to change her story. Now, of course, being a defense attorney, I think this would definitely be something that you would want to use because here is this person saying, you know, someone else did it. He's not responsible for this. How could McCraney have killed these girls if the police did it? But, you know, without any evidence, without anything, I think her claims are completely unreliable. And for them to her kind of break under the pressure and admit that it was a lie, um, it, it is easy to say, you know what, she was threatened to change her story. It's an easy way out, right? Because then you're still able to hold on to the fact that Renee Crumb's story is the truth and Coley McCraney did not do this. But I would then like to know how did his D how did his DNA end up at the crime scene? How are they going to explain that one away? But in any case, a judge previously denied McCraney's request for bail, so he is still in jail. On August 11th, 2022, a judge rescheduled the trial of McCraney after too few jurors showed up. But nonetheless, Coley McCraney is in jail. He will be in jail until the trials, he will be in jail during the trials, and he will be in jail after the trials as well, uh, after he is found guilty for the murders of J.B. Beasley and Tracy Hollett. Now, let me tell you what I think happened, because as far as I know, unless McCraney confesses and, and tells us what happened, we kind of have to guess and kind of come up with our own theories, and I'm going to share mine with you. So I think that while JB and Tracy were at the Big Little convenience store, someone noticed the two girls. Maybe it was the driver of the white pickup truck that was standing there idling. You know, maybe he was just watching them. Maybe he even overheard the girls getting directions from Marilyn and, and kind of knew where they were going. Now, I don't know whether this white pickup truck uh, drove off at the same time that JB and Tracy did, or whether or not Coley McCraney owned a white pickup truck or a light colored pickup truck at the time, or whether or not this pickup truck had anything to do with it, but imagine that they did. In any case, this person decided to follow the girls, or maybe he overheard where they were going and he drove off ahead. But at some point, maybe along Highway 123, this person stopped following them and sped up in order to get ahead of them. You see, unless it was a police officer, which I do not think was the case, 
whoever did this could not have just easily pulled the girls over from behind. So he drove ahead and parked his car along the road up ahead. Then as the girls got closer and they were about to pass him, he flagged the girls down. Maybe they thought an accident happened and someone needed help. But in any case, they came to a stop. I think he also might have indicated for them to kind of stop on the side of the road, which would also immediately explain the muddy tires. And now what do you do when you're in a car and someone is trying to talk to you? You roll down your window. This person might have signaled for JB to roll down her window, or maybe she did it automatically to hear what was up and what he was saying. So she rolled her window down a few inches. Not all the way, because I do believe that she was clever enough not to immediately trust the situation and to be kind of skeptical. But as soon as she rolled down her window a little bit, even just a little bit, this person pulled a gun on her. And that is when he was able to force JB to turn off her car and forced the girls out of the car. As the car was on the side of the road and the girls got out there, this would also explain their muddy shoes. Now, I'm not sure what happened in between this moment and the moment the girls were shot, but at some point, the killer instructed the girls to get on their knees hence their wet slash muddy jeans up to the knees. He then shot them both one time, executioner style in the head. And as this was definitely the most horrifying moment of their lives, I do believe that they would definitely have screamed, which could explain uh, what that woman heard on the night that the girls were killed, followed by the two gunshots. Now, of course, this is assuming that this maybe happened off of Highway 123. Even if Highway 123 was not the murder scene, I do believe it still could have gone the, the same way. The killer then took the keys, opened the trunk and put their bodies inside the trunk. First Tracy, then JB. He then drove to Herring Avenue where he left the car, taking the keys with him. Now there's one reason why I believe maybe two people were involved, due to the simple fact that the killer had his own car, right? So did he leave his car on the side of the road where he had just shot and killed the two girls? Um, and did he then have to walk back to his car? I think it would make sense that one person drove the car to Herring Avenue with another person following in their own car, so not in JB's car. And that the killer then, you know, left JB's car there and then got in the other car and that they drove off together. But as far as I know, uh, no other DNA was found and nothing else indicated that uh, a second person was involved. But in any case, one thing that I'd know for sure is that it was most definitely an extremely unfortunate and tragic case of JB Beasley and Tracy Hollett being at the wrong place at the wrong time. I hope that the fact that Coley McCrane has been arrested and will go on trial for the murders of JB Beasley and Tracy Hollett will help the families feel some sense of closure. And if closure is not an option, because how do you move on from something like this? I hope that at least knowing who did this after 20 long years will give them some sense of relief. I wish the families of J.B. Beasley and Tracy Hollett strength as they will have to relive the worst moments of their life when trial kicks off. I hope that justice for J.B. and Tracy can empower them. I also hope that by talking about this case, we can keep the memories of J.B. and Tracy alive. They were two teenagers with their entire lives ahead of them. They deserved a long, healthy and happy life. They deserved the chance to fall in love and to experience their dreams come true. But who better to say something about J.B. and Tracy than their own families? Beasley fondly remembers his daughter JB along with her best friend Tracy and what a joy they would bring to just about everyone they met. She was intelligent, she was she was energetic, she was athletic, uh, she was kind, 
although she was very competitive, and uh, she was just a, a and had a, a keen sense of humor. She was just a, a joy to be around. Well, JB got a double dose of personality, for sure. Um, I think Tracy got a double dose of compassion. Um, I, I could see Tracy would have been a, a Christian leader in this community. She had a love for her brothers, unlike anything I've ever seen. And um, JB, I think, would have been a dancer or a choreographer. And that concludes my very first episode as a true crime consultant. I hope to be back soon, and I hope that you'll be back to listen to more episodes of my brand new podcast, my brand new true crime podcast, True Crime Consultant. I would love to hear your thoughts on this case or any suggestions about future cases that you would like me to discuss. You can reach out to me on Instagram and TikTok at True Crime Consultant. And I really want to thank you again for being here and, you know, for the support so far. And um, yeah, if there are any suggestions in terms of things that I can improve, also, please let me hear that. Uh, but please be gentle. Thank you guys so much again, and I'll see you next week. Hi, my name is Isla Watson, and I am your true crime consultant, ready to talk to you about true crime.